online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Hello and welcome to Food FM Stories. We are a global digital radio station telling powerful, personal, political and uplifting food stories from around the globe. My name is Simon Alexander. I'm a producer at Food FM and this week, Food FM are invited to Relais and Chateau to the incredible Limpston Manor in Devon. It's a five-star hotel home to the Relais and Chateau delegate for the UK and Ireland and chef patron of Limpston Manor, Mr. Michael Keynes. So why were we there? Well, the Relais and Chateau Hotel Group who now have 580 hotels in 68 countries around the world, they are championing a campaign that goes far beyond just fine dining in the most decadent hotels. The initiative is called Food for Change, and it's in alliance with Slow Food and the Arc of Taste. You'll hear in greater detail about some of the amazing stories throughout this podcast about why this initiative is so important to, uh, well, everyone on the planet, really. In short, the essence of what is trying to be achieved is creating a greater awareness of protecting biodiversity through things such as regenerative farming, culinary heritage, sustaining our planet's food reserves for future generations, all of those sorts of things. Now, it was a two-day trip down in Devon, a fully immersive experience, which, long story short, means my gut did take a big hit, but I do not regret that for a second. We were treated to a five-course gastronomic experience, which saw five chefs from the Raleigh and Chateau group take to the pass and serve up delicious dishes curated using ingredients from the Arc of Taste list. More on that list shortly. Now, those chefs were Luke Matthews of Tewton Glen, Simon Cranage of Grantley Hall, Tom Skade of The Vineyard, Stephen Hayes of Cashel Palace, and of course, Michael Keynes of Limpston Manor. We'll hear from all of them in a moment. First, though, I spoke to Shane Holland, Executive Director of Slow Food in the UK. Now, Shane, we're uh, at the gorgeous Limpston Manor five-star hotel here where loads of different organisations and people from the hotel to suppliers will come together to talk about sustainability in five-star kitchens, but also households. It's not a coincidence that we've all come together at this sort of point. This is like a tipping, a tipping point, isn't it? And um, could you just explain to people why Slow Food UK is so important and, and what it is you're trying to achieve? As I say, it goes back to the message of, of good food for everyone, for the farmer and for the consumer. We're in the middle of a climate crisis. Um, our food supply is ever more fragile. I think the war in Ukraine has really underlined that. So what do we mean by good food? Um, well, good food that's good for us, good for the planet, um, and as a good for the wider landscape. So by ensuring that we have the biodiversity, by ensuring that we support those small producers, we can kind of make ticks against all of those things. It's great to be here in Limston, um, as a Relais and Chateau, so are really, really kind of promoting these ideals. But this is actually the same kind of food that we'd be eating whatever price point, whether we're in a home, whether we're in a restaurant, um, that message is the same. You, you ended your speech in there when we were doing the Q&A by saying, uh, you know, I'm crazy enough to believe that I can change the world a little. And that really struck a chord with me because it actually takes a lot of belief across the board to make this amount of change. But how could an average listener to this just be going, oh, I do want to, I, I do feel in a burning desire. Where do I start and how can I actually help and also not overspend? Because that would be the other concern people have is, oh, do I have to spend a lot of money in order to eat sustainably and, and do better things for the planet? Yeah, I mean, we can start by just doing one dish a week or even one day. We've heard of things like meat-free Mondays and so forth. You in your own home could have a sustainable Tuesday or a whatever day of the week you want to do it or just one, one dish or maybe one type of product. 
And by doing that in itself is going to have a huge impact. We can eat really well and we can eat sustainably and we can have an enormous impact on producers if we eat genuinely local food um, and we eat genuinely in the seasons. Now, I know the word local is banded around. I mean, if you live in Leicester, Walker's Crisps are local to you. And I know that everything is in season somewhere in the world. That's how it gets to us. But if we're eating genuinely in the season, then even what we think are sometimes expensive ingredients are much, much cheaper. And even um, ingredients which are always slightly more expensive, things like meat and fish, and I would argue they should be more expensive. If we're spending less on vegetables, if we're spending less on by removing processed foods from our diet, which are very expensive, then we'll have a little bit extra money left over that we can then actually spend that on some of those other products, which are always going to be a touch more expensive. Um, and if we do that, we're going to have a balanced household budget we're going to have you know our landscape continue to look as it does we're going to eat better we're going to feel better um, and we have you know a step towards you know improving things with the climate crisis in the bar last night you were, you were telling us all um, a great sort of it was almost a, a metaphor or a way of explaining what it is you guys do and why you're uh, and the mission you're on and that was through the medium of bread and a loaf of bread could you briefly tell our listeners that sort of analogy uh, just to sort of I think it really hits home when you hear it no, remembering in the bar last night, that's going to be hard to remember exactly what I said. But I think bread, bread is a really interesting concept because, you, you know, in the 1950s, um, you know, we were in this great big nuclear arms race, not so dissimilar as we are today. And as Russia and America were going to, you know, try and annihilate each other with nuclear weapons, the UK's contribution to global annihilation was something called the Chorley Wood Process for, for industrial bread. And I'm not going to name any brand names, but we, we all know what that bread looks like. It's the square stuff, which um, is is white um, and you know pre-sliced um, and is pretty soft and pappy. It appears to be very very cheap, but it's not particularly um, nutritious. Um, there is some nutrition in it. I have to be very careful, otherwise someone's going to um, to write me a letter and say that there is nutrition in the bread. But we could actually have some sourdough bread, you know, using some heritage grains, um, which is going to be those grains take longer to to come to 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 fruition. There's often more nutrients in. There's a lot more flavour in there. There's a lot more taste in there. And um, I would argue that's going to be a much more interesting product to eat. Um, the, the calories from that bread is typically lower than, than in a Chorley um, wood processed bread. Um, and you know, bread is, you know, is one of those biblical foods as well. You know, it, it literally biblical. It's the staff of life. It's, it's integral to what we do. And actually bread could be a really great product. You know, your, your question earlier about what should we do for one thing? What if we all committed to eating real bread? And I don't mean sourdough from some of the leading supermarkets, which actually was made two years ago, frozen, and then part baked off in, in the supermarket. Um, that, to me, is not real bread. But genuinely real bread, made by someone with some love, made by hand or you know, using you know, some machinery, but not kind of a big industrialised process. Um, and really enjoy that. And that bread also isn't going to go mouldy after six days. It's going to be fresh today. It's still going to be okay tomorrow. Day after that, you can taste it. And it will still be edible days and days afterwards. Yes, it may be croutons. Yes, it may be to be breadcrumbs. But that has got to be something that we all can do. Just lastly, uh, a little bit on Relais and Chateau and, and what it sort of means to be involved with this hotel group and how does it sort of does it filter down you know getting them these chefs are exhibiting some incredibly sustainable produce on their menus but we are in a five-star hotel i don't want to play devil's advocate but does that filter down does that have an impact on everyone outside of the hotel do you think 
change, you know, putting these initiatives in place? I think the answer to that is yes, um, because what Relation Chateau have is they have scale. Um, a number of their properties are quite large, and what they're doing is sustaining producers in their area. So I'm perfectly relaxed about the fact that it's a five-star hotel. Slowfood wants to see this absolutely everywhere. I want to see this in all of our kitchens. I want to see this in the most entry-level restaurants. But it's also important that it's actually here in Relais and Chateau properties. The point is all of us um, deserve to eat good food. All of us deserve to eat sustainable food. And that means it should be in Relais and Chateau. It should be everywhere else as well. Well said. Um, where can people go and find out some more information and get involved? So if you go to slowfood.org.uk, um, if you're listening from the UK, if you're listening outside of the UK, go to slowfood.com um, and you'll find resources there. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Delighted. So the five chefs from those hotels across the Relais and Chateau UK group descended on Limston Manor Kitchen to create a dish using just one ingredient from the Arc of Taste list. So the Arc of Taste program is a catalogue of small-scale quality products that are threatened by industrial agriculture or environmental degradation, uh, homogenisation, to preserve the edible biodiversity of our planet. These products are at either imminent or potential risk of extinction. The challenge was to create something that embodied biodiversity and culinary heritage on the plate. And first to the pass was Tom Skade from The Vineyard. Tom, everyone's been in the kitchen trying all the goodies you guys have, have cooked us up today. The challenge was to take something from the arc of taste menu or like list, so to speak, pick an ingredient and make something really cool out of it. What did you choose and why? So Berkshire pork, uh, moved to Newbury in Berkshire. It was one of the first things that, that came up. I was, I was aware of the Berkshire pig from uh, eating it in Japan where it was exported and it's, it's almost there. Uh, their version of Kobe beef, and it's called, uh, you have to excuse my pronunciation, but Kago Kagoshima, Kagoshima Berkshire. And, uh, I remember it was, it was my honeymoon, so it was about uh, six, seven, yeah, I'll be in trouble now, <laughs> seven years ago. Um, yeah, and eating it out there, and it always stuck with me, you know, how, yeah, a bit of Berkshire's in, <laughs> in Japan, it just stood out. And then, uh, yeah, taking the job at, at the vineyard, one of my priorities was to use local you know local produce stuff with stories you know it's great to be able to speak to guests to have the young chefs inspired by the ingredients and it's it, that's what we're about is it's the ingredients as chefs we're nothing without good quality ingredients so yeah my first port of call was the vickers our butchers and i said i need some Berkshire pigs and they said well we it is a rare breed but we do get in we get four a week um so whatever you can use great the dish i cooked today was a pig strotter cake so we use uh, the trotters, which again, a whole thing about sustainability and respect for the food is, you know, using every single, every single piece. And the trotters are a wonderful, gelatinous, rich, uh, yeah, flavoursome part of the pig, which unfortunately has fallen. Well, you've obviously got, you've got the big names of the pig trotters, which we all know about, um, but it's not used quite as much as it should be done and um, also guests I think sometimes they can be put off if they see pig trotter on the menu but uh, like with all the you know with all the guys that taste it today a lot of them never eaten pig trotters and they're like wow this is this is something special so we braise our pig trotters down in red wine stock cook for you know a good six hours uh, break up uh, break it down remove the remove the bones chop it up and take half of it and put it through the cake. So it's a mix of um, uh, flour, eggs, butter, uh, a traditional cake. Uh, we also add pecorino from White Lakes, some English mustard, and we bake it, chill it down, and then we'll slice it and we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll fry it again, just to crisp it up. 
um, and then we fill the centre with we cut out the centre and fill the centre with the rest of the trotters which we've cooked down with the rest of the um, the rest of the cooking liquor. So you've got a really nice rich ragu, you know, really yeah. Uh, and then that's topped with some lardo that we've made with the back fat of the pit of the Berkshire pig. One of the characteristics of the Berkshire pig is the fat content, and that's why it's fallen out of favour. It, and it's not as you know these all this intensive pork farming. They're looking for lean lean pork and quick growing you know where the barch pig is probably it probably takes close to twice the amount of time to develop to the pig that would be uh, on par with the, the intensive uh, farmed ones and it's got a lot of fat which unfortunately in this day and age puts people off um but that you know the marble in the flavor is beautiful from it. anyway so i use the um the lardo the back fat uh cure cure it down in salt for about 10 12 days finish it with a bit of um uh, timot pepper and uh, some uh, uh, peppercorns slice it thin that goes on top and then we have apricot uh, a bit of celeriac remoulade just to add that freshness and that you know because you need it with with such a rich dish and, and then it's just finished with a, yeah a few herbs from you know well, these particular herbs i picked from my garden so it's all trying to keep everything as as, as you know as some sorrel some nasturtium some oregano flowers yeah so it's just about trying to keep everything uh, yeah, I was close, and and that story, you know, it was it was stunning, like to to try it, and it was very silent in the kitchen when we were all tasting it. Um, do you? Every chef like wants to please people and give them something to remember. Do you get a kick out of showcasing ingredients that aren't as popular on menus and providing people with like you know an eye opening opportunity to try something they've never tried before? Does that like give you like that gratification as a chef to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave them their first picture, and they and it blew their minds. Is that a good feeling? Well, yeah, hundred percent. It's a memory, isn't it? And that's what eating eating is. You know, they, well, maybe me being a chef is slightly different, but yeah, sixty seventy percent of my memories, food is always somewhere. It's yeah. always somewhere in there. And if they can, you know, if they can come to the vineyard and eat and go away thinking, oh yeah, tell all their friends, oh you know, we had this amazing fish try dish, and and then maybe be a bit more braver to to try something else next time. You know, next time they're in a restaurant, they're looking at a menu and they see some ingredient that isn't quite what they would always order, but they'll step out of their comfort zone and try it and, you know, or even, you know, cook them at home. Exactly, I was going to say, because things like pig trot, they, they are, I mean, I've, I've definitely been to a butcher's where they've given me them for free because they can't shift them. Like, there'll be cuts like that still going on now and they are some of the tastiest. They're just, it's almost fashion and that's it, almost. Uh, so my granddad's still kicking about 96, 96 years old. Uh, yeah, and I was uh, I was preparing this dish, and it reminded me. Of, right, I better ring him. <laughs> I gave him a ring. I said, "Look, I'm just uh, I've just uh, prepped this pig shot. It's made me think of you. So I thought I'd give you a ring, see how you're doing." And he goes, "You know, I've got two cooking on at the minute." Yeah, 96 year old man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It still, it still cooks his. He has two pig trotters a week. Yeah, yeah, and he just loves to gnaw them. And he's, <laughs> this will probably put people off, but he goes, "It's the hairy bit in the middle of the toes, which is the best bit for him." <laughs> wow, what a legend! That's different gravy, isn't it? Uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today, mate. Which well, is thanks for having me. My name's Luke Matthews, and I'm the executive chef of Tuton Glen Hotel in Hampshire. Before we tasted the incredible dishes you guys created from the Arc of Taste ingredients list, we did a little Q&A where we all spoke about sustainability, factors in the industry, why the Arc of Taste list exists and why Slow Food UK is so important. You told a great story about a local supplier that you got to know who sells you watercress. Could you just share that story with us again, please? I've worked with this, this, this man. He, he, he came to the, the back door of the kitchen, an elderly gentleman with a bag of watercress, and he told me the story about how he, you know, he hand harvests up to his knees in water, and him and his son run it. 
and that, that he's the, he's, he thinks he's the only um, producer left in the country that hand harvests. So you know, for me, that was a, you know, a game changer. I've got I've got to use this chap, and and probably I don't know seven or eight years now. We we. He's been delivering twice a week to us fabulous watercress. It's amazing. Stories like that really do like almost light the menu up even more, don't they? Because yeah. it's the story behind the, the food we're tasting. Uh, from the Arc of Taste list, though, what was the ingredient you chose? And can you talk us through that, that dish and how you created it? Well, I've used the watercress. So Hampshire watercress is one, is one, of, the, um, is one of the things on the list. And, and like some of the other chefs that have taken part in this event, um, I've got a very, very good supply of trout that... I'm going to put forward to go onto this list because you know certainly the, the product is fantastic. It's it's organically, well it's properly um, farmed. Um, you know it's, it's farmed in, in uh, the River Test over Chalk Stream, crystal clear water. The trout tastes amazing, and they're, and they're they're not plate sized trout like in the old days. That you know they're three to five plus kilo fish. You know enormous great fish, absolutely amazing quality. Well, why do you think it's so important? Not just in in beautiful hotels and restaurants and fine dining establishments but also mid-market places and even homes why is it so important that generally we think more sustainably about the food we're eating it and where we're getting it from well i think you know it's, it's very clear if we don't start to look after our resources they won't be there and you know if we don't support um these producers the smaller producers they're just going to get swallowed up so you know we have a duty to protect everything for future generations so it's sort of a tough question but um a lot a lot of the things people were saying last night in the bar you know they're like oh, we want to educate people more and that sounds great on paper but it's also really hard in you know in the hospitality industry to sound like you're preaching at them you know what how what are the techniques and ways we can tell that watercress story you know without you know without them coming to you and asking you how do we get that message across that that's where what it is I mean, what I tend to do is every, everything that's got a story, I'll always make reference to on the menu. So I will say, air, air watercress from wherever. Um, I'll always try and promote the story surrounding that. And also, we're always looking for producers that have got something interesting that are, you know, sustainable, um, the best quality, small, um, small runs of stuff. Uh, um, and also, we have our own garden at a hotel where we grow quite a lot of produce. Um, so, you know, we, we want the best quality, but we, we do need to support these things. And I think people, when they sit in the, in the restaurant and they read stuff on the menu, they ask questions. And, you know, the waiters are very informed about what producer does what. And, you know, they can ask their waiter and the waiter will be able to tell them exactly where this comes from, where it's harvested or, you know, who produces it. Um, I, I get a sense that events such as this, where many chefs from the Relay and Chateau uh, group can come and sort of chat. It's a, a really good and unique opportunity to to share problems and solutions and those sorts of things. Have you have you got a lot out of these last couple of days? Yeah, any gathering like this is is valuable because you you share practices, don't you? And you you listen to other people's experiences. You listen to you know problems and 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 you know things that are going on. And and you think, oh, well, that's not just happening to me. It's it's, it's industry wide. We're all in the same predicament. There's an enormous shortage of staff. There's an enormous shortage of skill, um, and you know, and we 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 all collectively need to do something about it. And you know, as part of Relish Chateau, if we can share resource, as in, you know, when when someone's worked for me for a couple of years, and and you start to they start to express an interest in moving on, then I, I I'm going to be promoting that they should be going to work in, a, in another Relish Chateau property. That's really nice to hear. And lastly, of the things you've tasted, are there any particular things that stood out from any of the other chefs or anything from Michael here that will stay with you? you think, oh, that was, that was smart. I love what they did there. 
I mean, Michael's a phenomenal cook, and you know his journey is incredible. So, you know, I, I mean, we we were very lucky last night to have a fabulous tasting menu that he'd done, and you know, I, every course was so good I couldn't even pick out which one was the best one. I enjoyed it, all of it. So, so Michael's an inspiration to you know a lot of a lot of people, and you know certainly the food here is incredible. Hi, my name's Simon Cranage, and I'm executive chef at Grantley Hall Hotel in New Yorkshire. Excellent. Now, Simon, we um, uh, we just did a Q&A session in which all the chefs who've been invited here today from Relais and Chateau talked about the arc of taste and the various ingredients that you guys are using within your dishes today. Just quickly tell us what, what dish you've created and why you chose the ingredient from the arc of taste list. Okay, so I did a little cheese course, and uh, it's a cheese and savoury course, so it's quite quite close to my heart. It's delicious. Uh, we use the Crowdy, which is a goat's cheese, and the goat's cheese is from Skipton, from a company called Yellison Farm. Very, very small, small production, beautiful product. Uh, we pair that with um, some pickled vegetables, and uh, the vegetables are grown on our site. We don't grow a lot of vegetables, but what we do is we pinpoint you know, a specific vegetable to grow for that perfect time on a menu so we've got some heritage carrots that have been pickled we've also made a savory granola from ancient grains and seeds and we've added some mushroom powder for earthiness so you've got salty and sweet and uh, you know and acidic flavors going on so it's quite a mouthful of flavor and it looks very vibrant and beautiful on the plate amazing uh, was it a long evolution to get that dish to a finished place or are you happy with it immediately uh, pretty much happy with it. It's not a very complicated dish. It's just, you know, using the, the correct rule of if you have something that's quite rich and dairy and fat, you know, full of fat, you need something acidic. Um, so the pickled vegetables come into play there. And we just, we've, we've, we've added some sweetness with a little bit of honey and the honey's from our, our estate too. So um, all, all told, it's a, you know, once you eat it in the right quantities, it's a well-rounded dish with a great flavour. Sustainability seems to be a more prevalent thing now than perhaps ever before, especially within the hospitality industry. Has that been something you've always been aware of? And Secondly to that, does it ever feel like a, a not necessarily a compromise, but is it, is it something that it's almost like it's hard to always achieve when you're trying to fulfill a lot of people in a large restaurant? Uh, do, do you know what I mean? Is it a tough sort of thing to do, to commit to? It's, it's not a tough gig if you've got the right suppliers around you. If you haven't, then yes, you will, you will struggle. And obviously, if those suppliers are far out, then you've got the conversation then about miles. And we always try and keep a tight-knit community on our suppliers. So we look at what our suppliers can give us. Um, it's got to be good, whether it's sustainable or organic or whatever. It, first of all, it's got to be good. So if it's good and it's local, yes, we'll use it. Can you keep up with our trade? Yes, you can. Fantastic, you're in. But I think we're lucky in Yorkshire. We have an awful lot of these types that are, you know, small producers, small holdings. And um, yeah, we have, we, have a, we have a great time, you know, we, we, because we see different products and it changes as the seasons do. So yeah, we, we enjoy it. It's not a stress for us. Do, does it ever mean you put things on the menu that people have not necessarily heard of because you know it's so bang in season, it might be a bit unpopular and the window for that specific ingredient is really small, but it goes on the menu and it blows people, people's minds a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's getting people away from the prime cuts, isn't it? The sirloins and the fillets and all that stuff. And, you know, we, we've all eaten that before. We've all cooked that before. So, you know, we, we talked earlier on about beef cheeks. You know, it's such a delicious piece of meat, but it takes a bit of skill, a lot of time, but it's well worth it. You know, it's one of those things you can shove in the oven and leave for four or five hours, come back, and especially this time of year, autumn time, autumn walk, come back to load of that big bowl of mash and a beef cheek on top is nothing better uh, so we do try with the different cuts you know we and we, we we you know we it's all about educating as well you know we, we, our maitre d and our, our front of house team will you know talk to the guest and if there's something that they don't recognize on the menu they'll talk them through it because we we you know we do a taste session before with the staff so they know exactly what it tastes like and then um, we do a lot of selling that way so we can actually not force but 
advise, you know, to, to, for the guys to take something other than the fillet steak and the sirloin steak? That must be quite tricky because um, obviously like you're working in a really fine establishment with guests that are coming off to blow off some steam, have a weekend away, don't necessarily want to be edu educated at and they want their sirloin. Is it, does it, is it hard to sort of create a mind shift without sounding preachy for want of a better word? Yeah, I think I think that I mean I try. You know, the Royal Chateau guest is uh, you know they're quite well travelled, and um, they'll have probably heard of these things anyway. You know, you know we're not putting anything weird on the menu. It's yeah, just yeah. the the we, we give them the alternative. You know, we do have fillet on the menu, we do have sale on the menu, but we also have the other cuts as well. And maybe on a three night stay, they will want a fillet steak, some chips, and a bernet sauce because there's nothing better, is there? But maybe on Friday night, they might you know take something different. In our Pan Asian restaurant, that's where we really can be creative with the different cuts because the Pan Asian, you know, we can do anything we want. You know, we don't have to we're not stuck to a moniker we could just do what we want so lastly does uh does this sort of uh, influence on sustainability and also seeking out the best local ingredients does that bleed into your personal life at all you know does that is that make you think differently outside when you're doing your big shop with your family you know that sort of thing yeah, we look out for certain things. You know, we we we're always learning, aren't we? And and the certain items that we'll only buy. Uh, when we do the shop, it's we we have to choose quite a few different shops. You know, we, we the bread has to be correct. You know, we can't we, we don't use the white the white you know plastic bag bread and stuff like that. We there's much more better bread to eat, not just because it's sustainable. It's just a better product. You know, and you just have to use your little town. You know, we our little market town of Thirst got some great shops. So we we shop around. We don't just do it in one big you know dare I say it supermarket. Amazing. Thanks so much for chatting to us today, mate. Thank you. So my name is Stephen Hayes. I'm the culinary director of the Castle Palace Hotel in Tipperary in Ireland. Uh, Stephen, can you talk us through your dish and the ingredient you chose from the Arc of Taste list? Uh, a very short list in Ireland's case, of course. Yeah, so, so in Ireland, we're only blessed with 14 ingredients on the Arc of Taste compared to the UK of almost 200 ingredients. Um, so it's a little bit difficult. Like I said, we have an event coming up next month in Cashel where I have to come up with a six course menu with 14 ingredients. So it's tricky. Uh, the ingredient I took today was called the Ardcairn Russet. It's a variety of apple that's grown locally about 20 minutes from the hotel by a man called Contrast, who's known as the apple farmer locally. He grows uh, lots and lots of varieties of apple. Um, so I made a dish today that kind of champions it. We made a compote out of it, cooked an Irish brandy. We dried the apple crisp. We also had an apple gel on there as well, served with a caramelized mascarpone and a caramel and cinnamon ice cream. It, it looked absolutely stunning, tasted incredible too. How did you sort of decide that that is what you were going to do with it? You know, do you taste it raw, the apple, and go, right, I, I see what we can do here? Like the characteristics of every apple are so different. How did you go about sort of designing the dish? Yeah, well, like I said, I'm lucky to have a good relationship with Con, who brings us, I happen to ask him, three of the varieties that, he, that are on the Arc of Taste. He has two out of three which was great as well. So he brought me into two uh, and the Ardcairn Russet was the, was the nicer. It suited the dish a little bit better. Um, and look, I just thought that Ireland, Tipperary, Tipperary, you're probably familiar with Magner's Cider and Bulmer Cider, big uh, apple farming country, you know what I mean? So it was great to, to champion the apple. Um, and then the dish, it's, it's in season, it's wintry, you know, it's a little bit darker. All the fresh fruits from the summer are gone a little bit. So it's a, it's a darker dish, I suppose, you know what I mean? But what we're all about in Cashel is simplicity. So as you've seen, there's maybe four or five ingredients on the dish and the four or five ingredients are as tasty as you're going to get them. That's the way we look at our food there, whether it's beef or apple or whatever. We just try and keep it simple, but really strong flavors and lots of depth in cooking. And by using locally sourced ingredients, I think 
that makes sense. Locally sourced ingredients is one of the biggest messages throughout this whole couple of days, talking to everyone how important that is for sustainability, but just also maximizing the potential of the ingredients that are close. The windows of opportunity are smaller. That's one thing we've sort of learned, you know, and that's why some of these ingredients can get lost behind because they can be a bit fragile in transit or they just, you know, they've got a couple of weeks and they have to be used. Are there opportunities being missed, do you think, in your local area with, with ingredients that need to get added to this list soon? Absolutely. We have lots of cheese suppliers, we've got lots of farmers, we've got lots of uh, butchers that have lots of interesting products as well. Like I said, we've only got 14 items there compared to 200 in the UK. Um, so there's definitely a scope there. I nominated last year the Dexter beef to the to the Ark of Taste that come from 20 minutes down the road as well. Like everything is quite local in Cashel to me, which I never realised before I worked there. But the Dexter beef is a really high class product and being close to the area, it's it's we've championed it as well on our menus throughout the hotel. So we just want to add to it and be able to, to compete and be recognised as Ireland as a destination as well compared to the UK. Do, do you almost find that the story behind the ingredient, um, where it's come from, and its sustainability factors, that almost adds, I mean, for want of a better phrase, like does it make it taste better to... A, a consumer because they almost like the story behind it enriches it. it just gives it that extra level of understanding that can almost enhance the flavor subconsciously yeah look I, I really do think that you have to tell a story you go to a restaurant nowadays whether it's in the uk ireland anywhere around the world it's more than just a meal that's put up in front of you you send a message to your guests whether it's we're using chicken from brazil or whether you're using products that are local to ireland you know so what we try to do is tell the story work closely with our suppliers and champion all their ingredients really because i feel that if you tell a story like all the chefs have done today with their their individual dishes they're all very unique to a certain area to where they cook to where they work um, and i think like i said if you tell the story people respect it more people buy into it people have an experience rather than just a meal and that's what's most important these days and it's even gone to a stage where it needs to be a unique experience you know it's not like you can you know you can have beef here you can have beef in ireland you can have beef anywhere around the world but you need to tell the story we source our beef 50 meters from the restaurant we have a butcher next door who rears his own cattle abattoir at the back kills four animals a week he gives us the the fillets from that and we use some of the lesser known cuts as well for our roast on sunday but people when I tell them that, they're, they're astounded, you know, that they can literally see from the restaurant where the beef came from. And it's an incredible story. And it does, it does make the food taste better, I believe. Excellent. So are you really optimistic that in Ireland, especially that list on the Ark of Taste can grow and it, it can get bigger and you can utilize it and champion it more? Yeah, I feel it's almost my responsibility. Like I'm the only one here this weekend from Ireland to six other prop uh, five other properties in, in Ireland. And collectively, it's, it must be our responsibility to increase the awareness and to increase the list and, and allow us to yeah to use it to champion it and to to broadcast it i'm very proud to be the irish person here this weekend you know and i really want to to improve and increase the visibility of our little country there and make it a food destination as well as a tourist destination thanks so much for chatting to us mate thanks thank you i am joined by michael keynes uh, i'm in his beautiful manor i'm in your house thanks so much for having us firstly like this has been an absolute joy it was a bucket list place anyway so it's amazing to also experience it in such a unique way just give us a brief overview of why um the slow food uk movement the arc of taste initiative why why does that mean so much to you personally and also to relay and chateau well We've bought into these set of values at Relling Chateau and as chefs we're storytellers and you know we're very conscious of the impact that we make through tourism and hospitality on the global footprint when it comes to uh, sustainable you know uh, tourism. What does that mean? Okay so you know we can see our planets uh, in, a, in a dire state and what can we do to reduce carbon? Well 
but then we start looking at the food and we, we, we say to our chefs who are the pillars of our properties, you know, how can we do small things to make a difference? And so we teamed up with uh, Slow Food. We made a commitment in Relais Chateau back in 2014 to work with UNESCO to to improve the environment, more sustainable uh, environment through food and, and tourism. And, and one of those uh, uh, pillars that we're, we're working on is food for change. And this year, we want to highlight the need for people to know more about regenerative farming techniques and also to highlight the arc of taste, which is a, a list of produce, which if it isn't used or, or, or people don't, uh, you know, take the time to 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 grow and cultivate these products, they'll, they'll simply disappear. And so we brought together uh, five chefs, including myself, to illustrate and bring to life some of those products, but also to talk about the subject and make it a focal point to which perhaps we can spread the word about why regenerative farming is important and what that means and how uh, that has an effect on terms of uh, the ecosystem and the biodiversity that exists within the countryside and food chain. It's a bizarre thing that almost what we were trying to achieve is go full circle and almost go back in time, do things how they did it a hundred years ago we're so distanced by how we get things on the shelves in supermarkets that we forget about you know most people won't know what regenerative farming is and how it works so how do we even i know it's a broad question but how do we even go about trying to get a lot of difficult information to to most people simply put you know regenerative farming is about keeping uh, the land uh, in a state that it self-generates and looks after itself. If you uh, plough the the fields and fertilise them and you kill all the nutrition within the food and all the uh, ecosystem of worms and root, root source, then, of course, you're just going to end up with a barren landscape and you won't be able to grow anything. And that's happening, you know, dust storms in America when they got rid of the bison. You just left the countryside, you know, uh, vulnerable to the effects of, of intensive farming. And what we're talking about is, you know, cover crops and, and and, and not ploughing, uh, moat farming, uh, moat, moat um, grazing, where uh, you move the you move the animals on, and then there's this this virtuous circle of animals being on the land, and then moving on, and then that being ploughed, perhaps tilled very very once, very little, but then planting into that root 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 soil, so that there's this lovely vibrant nutrients in the soil, which is coming from. Uh, what's left in the ground you know and then and 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 the fact that this is actually cost effective it's but it's not intensive you know but but it, it could be a way forward especially when this year we've seen droughts uh, because we know that it you know these other techniques keep moisture in the ground longer and also it reduces the reliance on fertilizer which the price of fertilizer of course has gone through the roof so there seems to be a little more interest in it because there's a financial benefit for doing it but actually this is a fundamentally uh, the right, right way to to go if we are going to you know reduce the impact of farming on 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 our landscape and it's not fair or true to say that you know cattle farming is you know is a burden to uh you know it's not true to say that the cattle farming for instance produces more uh, emissions than it than it does if you farm in the right way you can capture carbon in the ground and also you can be net zero so you know it depends if your breeds are able to be outside all year round or not and that's that's why these native breeds are really important because they've been uh, bred to survive the highlands or or the lowlands or here on devon on dartmoor the red rubies are designed to be outside so there's a reason why these things that were 
good 100 years ago because we didn't have intensive farming we didn't have you know the ability to 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 put cattle in under great big sheds and etc etc so i think what we're realizing is that look we're, we're over you know we're, we're over extracting from our planet you know but we, so we've got to do things in a much more conscientious and more responsible way and looking at the soil and the vibrancy of of, of that ecosystem that exists you know with and under the soil itself is, is obviously a key thing to consider uh, and as climate is changing it, it, we also need to recognize that that is having a effect on uh, a lot of elements and as when it comes to the choices we make as a consumer uh, they're often influenced by the you know the chefs and the places and the restaurants we go uh, and and the conversations that are being had in the media and so that's why we wanted to bring you guys here talk about these things engage our chefs and show that we can be creative uh, and bringing the story uh, to life with food is always uh, an important thing I mean, it, and it definitely happened. I mean, when we were sat in the restaurant, you guys were talking so passionately and eloquently about the initiatives. But I think what struck me most is, you know, for a chef, I think you'd say the word cooking more, but you mentioned the word storytelling so much. Like that really fascinated me. What Has storytelling always been a big factor for you when it's come to cooking? Or is it something that's clicked later on in your career that it's sort of important to engage people in more than just the, the taste of the thing on the plate? I give credit to Dan Saladino. Dan said that, look, you know, we need storytellers about food and you know people need to step forward and share their passion and share their story and effectively that's what we've been doing through generations it's handing down stories and then we started putting those stories into books uh, but ultimately um, it's a much more poetical way of engaging a wider community because all of us have got a story to tell about food the producer can tell a story about food the farmer you know and the chef but also consumer. So when you uh, try and get people thinking about what is telling a story, it actually resonates more with them because actually what we're telling is a number of different stories that make up a bigger picture. And if we look at it in that way, it's a very, I think a very easily digestible subject matter because we're trying to get our message over in a positive way rather than, oh my God, the world's gonna end tomorrow. It's listen, here's a story. The past is our future. That's what you said. It's mad that we're going back to create our future. So this back to future sort of concept is like, well, it's bizarre. But it's important that we recognize that, that there were a lot of practices that we did then which were needed at that time to feed the world that was starving. Now we're overproducing and now we need to adjust and, and there's effect of that on the planet. And now we can really adjust and we have more knowledge, more science. We have a huge amount of land mass, a growing population, and we need to adjust. And, and I think what we're also saying is, you know, if we don't use it, you lose it. And that means to say if there's a varietals of apples or breeds of cattle, pork or whatever, and we're not using that, then there'll be no demand. And so people will start farming it. So it's really important that we understand. And the only way you can get people to do that is through telling stories. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really nice to hear, but at the same time it's uh, a massive challenge because some could see it as a compromise you know you you want to you know does that always align uh, can it be hard to to you know always do the right thing uh, so to speak difficult but you've got to start somewhere and what you've got to do is you know remember when people were talking about our climate 20 30 years ago we thought they were a bit out there and a bit wild and where are they now they're the mainstream and i think what we need to recognize is we all have a responsibility and uh, you know, we're looking at energy crisis. Well, you know, food is the other crisis that will be upon us soon if we don't start to address some of these issues. And then we need to rediscover some of these more extreme seeds that exist within these amazing ecosystems because they were they 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 evolved to exist 
in those ecosystems. They evolved to become resilient in their own way, but we've abandoned those grains or those types of uh, crops in, in favor of intensive farming and modified them. But we've, we, with that, we've lost uh, the ability for nature to sustain itself, maybe not so intensively, but that's fine because we need that biodiversity. We need that uh, ability to eat more than just one type of bread or you know, you know, that's what it's about. And I think that that biodiversity that we need is an enrichment as well of culture and understanding that we have within all our areas, within all our regions through food. You know, sustainability now is, is all over your menu because you're trying to make sure that you use as much local produce as you can and all those reasons you've just spoken about. But also for people at home, are there any particular cuts of meat or things that you just say, guys, go out and have more of this? Are there any of those that, that sort of get you get you going i think you know we're in this nation where we, it, everything's instant so steak's easy because you pan fry it off and you can but actually i'd say you know shoulder of a lamb is delicious you know i'm cooking cheek of beef today but look think about when i grew up we had lots of stews and lovely you know uh pies and it's those slow those cuts that are that are cooked nice and slow have loads of flavor and you know, low and slow, we talk about cooking and braising and, 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 and you know, belly pork is delicious, you know, um, lamb belly is delicious too. And, uh, you know, um, and so I th what I say is that some of, the, some of the, the, the dishes that we cook are humble and some of the best cooking in the world is simple. So, you know, we just need to reconnect with some of our techniques in cooking and, and start to venture out and be a little bit more adventurous. Like there's nothing wrong with a slow braised shoulder lamb. It's delicious, you know, um, and there's so much you can do with it. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us, Michael. It's been a wonderful couple of days, honestly. Thank you for coming. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. What an incredible couple of days. I'd recommend at the drop of the hat anyone, if you can, to go to Limpston Manor. It is the most beautiful place, stunning location. Michael Keynes and the whole team were so welcoming and warming. And what Raleigh and Chateau are doing to promote the awareness of regenerative farming, more sustainable practices in order to preserve the best ingredients and food that could become extinct in the near future if we're not too careful is remarkable if you want to find out more simply head to foodfmradio.com thank you so much for listening we have so much more content and stories from the world of food on our website and you can get us on all the major podcasting platforms too spotify apple podcast google etc etc follow us on instagram and twitter please do leave us a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to thanks so much in advance and we'll see you next time to find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.